Everyone knows Law Matters was created to open the lines of communication between law enforcement and the community. Over the course of the last year, we have become painfully aware of the very negative headlines national media projected across the country regarding all law enforcement agencies. Over the last several months, and after numerous investigations, we have learned that these negative headlines did not tell the whole story but rather painted a picture designed to diminish the rule of law and those whose job it is to enforce it. Law Matters wants you to hear all the facts so you can decide for yourself. As these investigations conclude, these stories will be featured on our Truth Matters page on lawmatters1030.org website. Now, let's start the show. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is U.S. Attorney Gary Ristano. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, Sherry. Thanks very much for having me on. Yeah, we've got a lot to talk about. First, I I would like the listeners, because I I had some people going, isn't that the Attorney General? I'm going, no. Can you (laughs) explain the structure of the U.S. Attorney's Office? Sure. The position of U.S. Attorney is one that was created back in 1789 with the Judiciary Act that created the federal court system. And it is a position for Um, the chief federal prosecutor in each of the federal districts across America. For us in Arizona, it's one district encompassing the state. So I lead an office of prosecutors and other administrative professionals um, who are engaged in litigation in federal court. That's prosecutions uh, in cases where we have federal jurisdiction. And it's a substantial amount of civil litigation, both defending the United States Uh, as well as some affirmative uh, enforcement actions in civil rights and fraud cases. Can you give us an example of maybe an old case that you can bring up and kind of clarify that for the listeners? Well, sure. Um, I'll give you a a, a recent case. We just had a um, trial victory this past week in the case against David Harbor, an investment fraud scheme. So that case was a federal prosecution because it was wire fraud and other Uh, schemes under federal law. Um, Could that case have also been prosecuted at the state? Sure. There's some areas of concurrent jurisdiction. Uh, There's some areas of exclusive federal jurisdiction, like our work in Indian country. We also had a successful trial victory this past week in a child sex offense on um, Native American land, which means we had to prosecute it. And of course, the border issues we're going to be talking about today are, in most cases, exclusively federal in jurisdiction. So tell us a little bit about your background. What made you want to become an attorney? I guess what made me want to become an attorney was the desire to help in some respects. That's what many lawyers say. Uh, I was in the Peace Corps after college and before law school. That really did crystallize it for me that, um, you know, lawyers really can help get things done. I was doing community development work in a rural area of Paraguay, uh, trying to just help on latrines and wells and other water sanitation issues. And I feel like there were some diplomacy skills that I had and gained more of while I was down there. So that was pretty natural for me to want to go to law school after that. I haven't always been a prosecutor. I was a legal aid lawyer uh, for about three years, working a lot in Yuma on the border with farm worker clients, and I did civil rights work at the attorney general's office. So I've got about 10 years of community development work in my background, and then about 20 years since 2003 as a prosecutor. Some of the situations that happen on the border, I know I've, I've been to the border, I've visited with some of the ranchers, 
and I've seen the destruction. What what do they do? Do they go to you federally, or do there are these situations where they've got property damage, and you know people are just it's scary what goes on down there. Do they so go to you, or do they go to local people? We don't get um, those um, complaints from the ranchers. I think the, they can go to um, the federal law enforcement partners. I know uh, DHS has liaisons with them. Um, we really want to deal with law enforcement. We don't want anyone that's not a sworn peace officer taking the law into their own hands. And so the cases we get come from our federal or state and local law enforcement partners. Okay. So is it a case where, you know, hey, you can get them in jail for a longer period of time than I can on the local level? Let's do it in your courtroom? Well, so it depends on what um, the nature of the crime is. Like if it's trespass, and we hear some of these um, in the Yuma area in particular with trespass on the agricultural products. Sure, that's something that could be um, prosecuted locally, but we can also prosecute those from a federal level, depending on the background of the person. Here's where it would be good for me to say, sometimes coming into the United States illegally is a misdemeanor, and there's not a whole lot of force to that. Sometimes it's a felony when someone has previously been formally deported, warned, told not to come back into the United States. And it's when it's a felony prosecution that we have um, more robust ability for deterrence on the federal level. Okay, do they keep a list of people who have come in illegally and, you know, like a no-fly list? Do they do that for the border, no-entry list? Well, they do. Our partners at um, DHS, at, at, at Customs and Border Protection on the port and the Border Patrol, all of that's electronic. They'll know when they fingerprint someone whether they have actually been um, deported. We can't prosecute our way out of this, though, and so we don't our law enforcement partners don't present every case to us, and we don't prosecute um, every case. But we are doing thousands of federal prosecutions a year um, to make a deterrent impact on the border for those who enter unlawfully. So what are the prosecution priorities? So let's talk about those. From a border perspective, we've got alien smuggling, which I'll probably talk most about. Um, we've got the illegal entry and reentry, those misdemeanor felony violations. We've got drug cases, which is an area of concurrent jurisdiction with our state partners, and we'll talk about that. And we have assaults on federal officers. Um, and let me start with the assaults on federal officers, because this is where we as prosecutors can best protect um, those that protect and serve on the border. An assault on a federal officer can take various forms. Um, you know, it could be as simple as pushing an officer down. It's got to be something more than resisting arrest. But Border Patrol agents and others will talk about the dangers of rocks thrown at them, and we have cases like that as well. Um, we try to um, investigate and look at any of the cases that are brought to us. We've been making an effort to get law enforcement officers, particularly Border Patrol agents, to feel more comfortable reporting assaults that are made on them by the aliens that are coming into the United States. I don't in any way mean to suggest this is a frequent occurrence. Most economic migrants coming into the United States are peaceful. Um, but any time that someone lays hands on a peace officer or otherwise causes them injury, we need to take action to protect the officers and agents. 
Do you remember the case it several years ago where um, somebody on the other side of the border was throwing rocks, I mean, not stones or pebbles, big rocks, at Border Patrol? Whatever happened with that, do you know? So there there may have been many of these cases. Okay. There was a prosecution that my office had um, against a Border Patrol agent um, who shot through the fence line and killed a young Mexican boy. Jose Elena Rodriguez, I think. Um, so that was that's the case I'm thinking of. Is that the one you're thinking of? I, I think so. I think so. So, yeah. So that's the case that my office prosecuted. Because remember, we've got a civil rights aspect that we are looking at as well. And in that case, the office um, concluded that it was appropriate to bring charges against the Border Patrol officer. These are difficult cases. Ultimately, um, after a couple of mistrials, um, a final jury acquitted the Border Patrol agent of the conduct. That was a complicated set of facts. It's rocks being thrown up a hill. But um, we presented the evidence we had. We respect the decision of the jury to ultimately acquit in that case. Oh, well, rocks can be considered a lethal weapon, can't they? Well, sure they can. Sure they can. But this is, you know, look, we're prosecutors. We're looking and searching for the truth in anything that we do. Sure. Um, we do assaults on federal officers, and to the extent that we felt that there was um, uh, conduct by an agent that was, in some sense, a violation of civil rights, we would look at that as well. We've got to be we've got to be willing to look globally if we're going to be helping to bridge the divide between law enforcement and the communities we serve. True that. True that. So what let are- me say, Sherry, I really appreciated listening to the lead-in to your show. We need more people like you and your listeners trying to bridge the gap between community and law enforcement because it's it's unlike anything I've seen now in my 20 years as a prosecutor, and we really want to do what we can to help bridge it from both sides. I appreciate that. Thanks so much. Let's talk a little bit about the, the smuggling you referenced. What goes on with the smuggling? How, does, how do you catch these people? So um, a lot of these now are in vehicles, right? They get across into the U.S. side and they're being picked up by drivers and they're being brought to some staging locations, sometimes things we call drop houses um, in more urban areas and on into the rest of the country. So how do we catch them? Well, it's sometimes local law enforcement partners. Sometimes it's Border Patrol um, uh, and other federal partners that are doing it. Unfortunately... In many cases, the drivers of these vehicles make a second mistake, compounding the first crime by trying to flee. So that's why this is such a critical area for us. There's potential victims in the vehicle, the economic migrants themselves. There are potential victims on the freeways, um, innocent third-party drivers and our law enforcement partners. And so that's why we really are trying to prosecute to just about a zero tolerance perspective here now on these alien smuggling cases. We did about a thousand uh, of these cases last year, um, wow. many of them drivers. Wow. I know that. I would also say, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I would also say um, we are seeing some trends here that are um, disturbing trends, and it's young drivers that we are seeing. We've prosecuted about 20 juveniles, very young drivers in the last 14 months. And we really don't do a lot of juvenile 
adjudications in the federal system. We're not set up for it, but because we have the exclusive federal jurisdiction, we need to take some deterrent steps here to get the juveniles and other very young drivers um, to realize the error of their ways. And here we've got a non-prosecution strategy that I'd also like to talk about if I can. Sure, absolutely. So working with um, a partnership, and I'll describe that in a minute, we've got, we're working on an ambitious public service announcement. We identified three young drivers, adults, but young adults, who had um, been recruited on social media, Snapchat and other media forums like that, and I think it's important for us to talk about the names of the social media companies that are, that are um, allowing this traffic to go through it. They're being recruited for big money, you know, a couple thousand dollars to take several aliens and, and drive them in the vehicle. And that temptation proves to be too great for some um, of our youth. And so we've gotten some contrition statements from three of them, some videos where they reflect on what they did wrong and how it's impacted their life. And we're going to be working in the next couple of months to distribute those um, over social media to try to get some impact with the parents and other young drivers themselves. I'm really pleased at the efforts of our partners here. This largely comes from the Alliance to Combat Transnational Threats. It's organized by the Border Patrol with extensive support from sheriffs, particularly the Pinal County Sheriff, as well as DPS. Uh, and it's a really nice partnership with those agencies, as well as all of our federal agency partners in the Justice Department and Homeland Security Investigations, to try to get at trends and intel and to look at both prosecution and non-prosecution strategies. So please look for this when it comes out. We're really excited about this opportunity. Yeah, I will. That that sounds like something that should be broadcast. And if you have something, send it to me and I will broadcast it. But I'm just wondering, the social media, I don't know if you're familiar with Eric Bauer. Uh, he went after Backpage and Craigslist because of the sex trafficking. Can't these social media platforms be, and he won, so can't these platforms be held accountable for encouraging illegal activities? I mean, I think those are difficult cases to make from a criminal perspective. I think we should be, first of all, looking at engagement with these um, social media companies. I can tell you that the victim community arising out of the fentanyl crisis is pushing um, some of these social media companies to be more careful and to monitor more. And so with organizations that are out there trying to push for that, I think that's the best first option here, um, given the First Amendment freedoms and other protections that the media companies have. We certainly would welcome an engagement here in Arizona because it's just too easy over these, um, over these company platforms for young people to be lured. And let's be clear, they're being lured by the cartels, um, you know, several steps down the road. That's true. Do you think they pick these high school kids because they they are not considered adults? We had a 14-year-old driving, you know, illegals that was caught, and they're not going to have a long-term arrest record, right? So we think the original um, uh, way of doing it was an expectation that the juveniles would simply not be prosecuted. That's why it's been important for us yeah. to really ramp up our willingness to adjudicate 
juveniles, um, particularly when there's a danger involved like fleeing or doing the same conduct on multiple occasions. And, um, and we do think that these are meaningful, uh, meaningful results in their lives. These contrition videos are great. I mean, one, um, one young woman lost a scholarship, and that's important to talk about. Yeah. Some of them are getting real time. I mean, they're getting eight and ten months in federal custody. That's a time to reflect and hopefully um, realize the error of one's ways. Do you have a, a youth program? Does the U.S. Attorney's Office have a program for young adults, youth to get involved? Like an internship, I guess I would say. Oh, okay. That's a that's a, a great question. Um, we um, we have a lot of outreach with college and law students, um, and you know that's what we have generally focused on. We've realized in the last year or two that we do need to be doing more engagement with youth generally. Part of it is we need to be making people understand and talking to them about the value and honor in prosecution. It's not just law enforcement that looks, that's looked down on by the community these days. It's also prosecutors. That's yeah. different for us. True that. <laughs> the other thing we want to do is engage with the communities. We've got a program. It's not necessarily a border program, but it's called Project Safe Neighborhood, and there's grants that can be done. We've been working to get what we call micro-grants or impact grants into some communities. And we've got some exciting projects that we're trying to work on um, in the Tucson area as well as the Phoenix area. And I'm hopeful that we'll have more that we can talk about in the coming months there. Because that, too, is an opportunity to intervene in someone's life before they start down the wrong path. Now, people, I I think kids don't realize how impactful it is when you you screw up and you know it's a mistake you weren't thinking but it'll affect the rest of your life and yeah let's try to avoid that tell me what what is the joint task force alpha so this is a an effort by the department of justice and homeland security nationally to try to disrupt networks of alien smuggling i told you previously we prosecuted about a thousand alien smuggling cases last year Most of those were cases where we caught the driver and maybe the passenger as well and prosecuted them, and that was it. We really didn't do anything with it other than the specific deterrence on that case. But we're also looking for general deterrence, and we're looking to disrupt the command and control of networks. So Joint Task Force Alpha, particularly in the southwest border states, is making an ambitious effort to work on both sides of the border. It's been very good cooperation with Mexico. We had a case um, in Arizona, um, sort of codenamed Poyos Hermanos, um, that had um, prosecutions in Arizona and important takedowns in Mexico as well, and we're expecting sentencing of some of the people in Mexico. This is getting us two and three levels up the chain, not just the people who recruited the drivers, but the people who organized the recruitment of the drivers in the first instance. And it's a way to try to get more accountability on both sides of the border. There's some wonderful examples um, coming along from Texas and California and New Mexico as well. And we expect some additional news in Arizona, we think, um, in the short term on some additional cases. And the uh, social media was saying that, you know, Americans shouldn't be going to Mexico. And they put a big map out there with all the different colors saying, you know, which areas to avoid. I'm hearing from you that we'd have a good relationship with with our 
counterparts in in Mexico. Is there any realistic agenda that these people are, is it marketing, just marketing, trying to fear, make people fearful or, you know, don't, don't go vacation there, spring break, maybe avoid Mexico. What's going on with that? Have you seen it? I don't, I don't think we yet know or can divine the actions of the cartel in the most recent incidents in, in, in Matamoros, nor do I think we really can divine their intentions when the, um, uh, uh, women and children from the Mor- Mormon colony in Lamora in Sonora were killed back in 2019. Um, yeah, that was... What I can say is there's certainly a need for Mexico to control its cartel violence, and I hope we as Americans can help. I'd like to talk to you about what I see in my interactions um, with people in Mexico. Yeah, please do. So. Here's, I've done a lot of work in, in Mexico. I learned Spanish in the Peace Corps and have been down teaching, oh, probably two dozen times over the years during my career with the Department of Justice. And so I've worked a lot with line-level Mexican prosecutors and, um, and police officers, teaching things like trial advocacy, talking about strategies collectively on working on money laundering cases and other fraud cases, and just about the ethics of prosecution. What I see in those meetings and what I've always seen is just a tremendous willingness on the part of these professionals in Mexico to roll up their sleeves, work hard, and protect their countries. Mexico embarked on an ambitious effort to change its justice system several years ago, to have something more similar to what we have in the United States, more consistent with what we call the rule of law because it has more transparency, more consistency, and more finality, which are the three hallmarks. Um, And there's just been a great willingness there to engage. Is there corruption in Mexico? There certainly is, and there would appear to be at a greater level, um, certainly, than um, in the United States and other countries. And Mexico um, needs to get a handle on that. But I want to tell you, the people that I have had the opportunity to work with are just wonderful advocates for their country and for the communities that they serve. Now, that's the line level. I've had a chance as a um, United States attorney now to have some more high-level meetings. Um, We met with our counterparts um, in August, and it was me and the other U.S. attorneys from the southwest border with our equivalents um, in Mexico. And that meeting was uh, much more pointing fingers um, a little bit at each other. You know, we need to control southbound firearms. Mexico needs to control precursor chemicals entering, and, and, and uh, opioids and fentanyl coming north. But even in those meetings, there was a wonderful spirit of cooperation, I think particularly on the alien smuggling. That's an easy one for us to get, get behind because of the victimization. And I want to tell you, we've got several really good examples with firearms where Mexico has cooperated with us, helping us to trace the firearms after recoveries in Mexico. They want us to do more. We should do more to prevent the flow of southbound trafficking. But I think any U.S. prosecutors that's that's done work in in Mexico will tell you that there are some very, very good examples of cooperation. Is it all there? It's not. We've got challenges, as we have in working with any sovereign nation. But I remain optimistic that there is opportunity for collaboration with Mexico and that that is a key tool for us in combating both southbound and northbound contraband. 
I'm glad to hear that because I was reading those headlines and I thought, are they just causing panic? Are they, you know, if it bleeds, it leads type news news reporting. And I've got godchildren in Mexico, so I'm glad to hear what you just said. You know what? Let's take a two-minute break and we'll be back in a few. Stick with us. Nathan Chabin, producer for Law Matters. I have a goal to reach and I need your help. I want to put the DEA out of business. That's right, the Drug Enforcement Agency. If you have an addiction problem or know someone who does, please reach out to lawmatters1030.org and click the DEA tab for more information. Reaching out is the first step. We have the resources if you have the will. You can beat this demon and help me put the Drug Enforcement Agency out of business. National media paints all law enforcement with the same broad brush, repeatedly exploiting the most deplorable. These headlines do not represent the majority of law enforcement nationwide, nor do they embody the amazing men and women in our local agencies. Hi, this is Sherry. Law Matters Live Show brings you these extraordinary, dedicated law enforcement professionals every Saturday morning at 8. Please go to lawmatters1030.org to become a sponsor. Together, we can back the blue and keep our conversation going. We all need your support. To report suspected human trafficking, please call the National Human Trafficking Resource Center at 1-888-373-7888 or text HELP or INFO to 233-733. To learn more about Homeland Security investigations and our efforts to combat human trafficking, please visit our website at www.ice.gov or check out the DHS Blue Campaign at www.dhs.gov slash blue campaign. For more information on the Southern Arizona Anti-Trafficking Unified Response Network, please visit us at www.saturn.org or find us on Facebook. Law Matters Live Show opens lines of communication between you and law enforcement. On our next show, Colonel Mills from Davis-Monthan Air Force Base answers your questions and prepares us for this year's air show. Hi, this is Sherry asking you to help sponsor our mission by contributing to Law Matters on GoFundMe.com. Every dollar counts, and together we can back the blue while we keep the conversation going. Law Matters podcast can be found on iTunes, Google Play, and LawMatters1030.org. Thanks for staying with us. We're back. Our guest today is U.S. Attorney Gary Rustanio. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? <laughs> nice time to find out, right? Thank you. It's Rustano. Rustano. Okay. Okay. Let's let's talk about you. You mentioned weapons. Let's talk about what goes southbound. What kind of contraband do they take into Mexico? Yeah, it's it's um it's guns and it's money. Um, you know, we, we want to follow the money. We want to disrupt these organizations, and that means picking off money. And money comes in various ways these days, some digital, some cash, and some of that cash still winds up just going um, back across the border. So we're looking to get both of those um, both of those things. One method, again, there are opportunities for cooperation here with Mexico by getting Mexico more involved in southbound inspections. You know, the, the United States can do some. Um, the, the Customs and Border Protection can do some. I've seen it at the San Isidro Port of Entry and the Nogales Port of Entry, um, where, where dogs can be out um, and used to try to detect contraband. But we need the assistance of Mexico there as well um, to help prevent that. Simply put, one cannot take a gun out of the United States into Mexico, and um, we need to collectively be more vigilant 
on that on the border, and it'd be great to have more resources on the border in order to be more vigilant. That's step one. I've got a little more on the more long-term prosecution strategies of those. Tell me about it. So, look, gun trafficking is a big deal um, in the Department of Justice, and it's a big deal for our, our state and local partners as well. Um, there are pipelines um, that are going within the United States um, from source states to states where it's more difficult to obtain a firearm. And particularly in the southwest border, there are firearms headed south um, to Mexico. And we know this um, both from intel, but also because there's recoveries of United States firearms in Mexico at crime scenes. And that's the worst scenario for us in the world. And so we have large-scale investigations um, with ATF and with Homeland Security investigations, as well as other partners, to try to disrupt these networks, to look at the straw purchasers, and to use the new tools that the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act has provided us to um, try to dismantle more some of these gun trafficking rings. Some of that's a law enforcement solution. Some of it involves um, good assistance from federally licensed firearms dealers. Oftentimes, these big box stores who have good compliance programs, um, look, they're free to sell firearms when someone passes a background check, but they're also free to pass their suspicions along to law enforcement. We very much appreciate when they do. My one request for the licensed firearm dealer community is cash is always suspicious. And anytime someone is coming in with cash, um, particularly near the border, we do ask for more vigilance to try to disrupt these rings because we've got straw purchasers, people who can legally purchase a firearm, getting it, giving it to others who are then taking it down south to harm our neighbors in Mexico. So if somebody is buying with cash, I know there's a $10,000 limit you have to file paperwork or something. It Does yeah, that apply sure. to the gun The 4800s would certainly apply um, in excess of $10,000. And, you know, we certainly see good reporting from the licensed firearm dealer community. Um, if it's less than $10,000, there wouldn't be an obligation to report. That's where we simply rely on the good citizenship and good stewardship of those, um, of those merchants to call in tips to law enforcement when something seems to them suspicious. It's not only cash that might resonate some suspicions, but just as a prosecutor, I understand cash is not illegal. I understand that there can be fully valid sales. It's just, it's, it, it doesn't, it's a little suspicious um, when someone is coming in with cash instead of credit, particularly these days. And of course, cash is an anonymizer and cash fits the paradigm that we are concerned about, which is someone going into a gun store shortly after someone else handed them cash to buy a gun that's not for them. And that's the scenario we're trying to avoid. What about gun shows? There's so many so people for shows, it and others um, are against or, it and it's confusing. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to talk about potential for legislation there. Generally for um, gun shows, um, uh, there's no required background check. The Safer Communities Act certainly now requires a little bit more thinking on the part of people who are selling or purchasing at a gun show because it can be a violation to provide a firearm to someone um, you know 
is a felon or another prohibited possessor or someone who is likely or someone who is going to use the firearm, who you know is going to use the firearm to further criminal activity. So I do think that we've got the opportunity to see more vigilance from those who are selling at gun shows. And look, this should be every citizen's goal and responsibility to have people use firearms lawfully and safely. So true. And it's everybody's obligation to, if you do see something or suspect something, to say something. It's better to call it in and be wrong than be right and you did nothing, especially if somebody dies in the process. So, And the concern here on all of this for us is what we call crime guns. You know, this is, this is not um, an effort to, you know, create suspicion around the lawful purchase and sporting use of, of firearms. The concern is guns used in crime. Right. It's, do you get a lot of cooperation between you and the local, and how about tribal areas? Do, does everybody work together, or, you know, is there lines you don't cross? How does that work? I think we do pretty well in Arizona. I think Arizona is a special place. For all the, the weirdness that sometimes goes on, we throw fewer elbows at each other in this state. We've, we've been blessed with good civic dialogue over the years, and I think that will protect us even in, in, in an era when people seem to be willing to say more and more um, inflammatory things. So that's a good baseline that we've got. Um, I think even when, you know, there's different administrations involved and different, um, different perspectives. Most of what we do in law enforcement is the same, administration to administration. So I'm really pleased, and I really appreciate the opportunity to, ask, to answer this question, at the cooperation. Our federal partners, ATF, DEA, FBI, HSI, and the Marshals Service, along with IRS and lots of other smaller agencies, work very, very well with their state and local counterparts. Our sheriffs along the border do a tremendous amount of work, which sometimes includes cross-deputizing federal agents to make it easier to fulfill the federal mission in that particular county, and we appreciate that as well. We can't do our work in Indian country without cooperation with our tribal partners. Uh, The Tohono O'odham Nation um, outside of Tucson is very impacted by the border. It is a smuggling route, um, and we do have many apprehensions on tribal land. And so it's something that we talk about with their tribal police department, and we encourage continued cooperation um, with, uh, with the Border Patrol and other federal partners. Uh, the Kokopa Indian Reservation outside of Yuma also sits along the border. I know that the Border Patrol has had communications and conversations with them as well. Uh, And that's an important piece of all of this. It's also why, um, particularly with COCOPA, why my office and the Department of Justice were so insistent that the state take down those shipping containers. We don't talk enough about the ones that were on tribal land. Those served no purpose at all. uh, And it really, really infringed on the tribal sovereignty. When we got involved in that lawsuit, uh, my efforts were were, um, you know, strongly to try to address the tribal equities there. When you arrest somebody on tribal land, do they go through the judicial system on the tribal land, or is it a federal case, or does it matter, or do you pick and choose? (laughs) 
you sort of do pick and choose, and it's pretty neat. It really is um, have, has been neat to see the development of tribal justice systems within Arizona. It depends on the tribe. Gila River and Salt River up near Phoenix and the Pascua-Yaki Nation, um, right sort of in the heart of Tucson, have very robust criminal justice systems. They do felony adjudications. Um, and so sometimes there, if there's an assault, we can talk with the prosecutors and say, where does it make the most sense to charge this case? Yeah. It's the same dialogue we have with our state partners. In other nations, like the Tohono O'odham Nation, they only have misdemeanor jurisdiction, but there still are times when the misdemeanor jurisdiction is going to serve. We particularly look towards those culturally competent services in juvenile adjudications, and there may be some cases when a juvenile that's a tribal member would be best served for a more minor crime being adjudicated tribally rather than federally. And so we do pick and choose with, I think, more art than science. What is, I, I'm looking at my notes here, what does ACTT stand for? So that's the one I talked about that's doing the public service announcement, the Alliance to Combat Transnational Threats. Okay. All that's right. the Border Patrol-led initiative with uh, strong support from the sheriffs and uh, DPS as well as other federal partners. So if you're looking at the entire border, are the tribal lands considered a, a higher intensity drug trafficking area than like you know a place that isn't tribal land no the high to, the high intensity drug trafficking area really can be is is throughout the state um, there are many um uh uh funding efforts that are on the border of course but there's also some that are up in the phoenix area as well uh let me talk a little bit about the high if i can yeah absolutely so um, I want to talk about, um, first of all, the structure and then what it funds. The structure is awesome. You know, if you look at the charter of any Haida, and most states have one, the requirement is that there be a board that is equally composed of federal and state local voting members, which means that it's not something where the federal partners can decide which way we're going to embark. It's a joint effort. Uh, and there's got to be collaboration and buy-in from federal and state partners in order to do it. That's a really neat thing. The funding comes from the, the drugs are the Office of National Drug Control Policy in Washington, but it really is designed for local use. It includes things like studies. There's a, a, a very ambitious baseline study on marijuana legalization to try to figure out now, it was actually last year, um, what the impact, what, where we are with respect to marijuana, and we'll see again in a few years on public safety impacts on that. Those are important analytical tools that the HIDA uses. It also does funding, though, and this is particularly important to me. We sometimes hear, oh, the federal government doesn't do enough on the border. State prosecutors have to charge some of these border drug cases. Well, they, they should. We're, we're paying them a lot of money um, to charge those cases, and we're really supportive of the efforts of our state prosecution partners. HIDA funds 11 prosecutors throughout the state, including in all border counties, um, as well as Maricopa County. Uh, and they fund 11 uh, legal support positions in those offices. That's 22 positions. And that makes a lot of sense to me because it gives local control over how to address the drug problem in a particular county. Um, and we think it's a very, very good use of dollars. And we're very pleased with the partnerships with those county attorney's offices. Now, the sheriffs sometimes tell us 
that they're not getting sufficient reimbursement because they're the ones that have to house the prisoners um, in state custody or the detainees in state custody. But there's a really good program called SCAP, the State Criminal Alien Assistance Program, that reimburses sheriffs. Many sheriffs don't feel that that formula provides them enough. If that's the case, they should go to Congress and try to get the formula adjusted. But there is a formula that pays um, for housing the detainees when those drug cases are brought to the state instead of the federal level. Yeah, I know some of the border counties in Cochise County, you know, they spend a lot of money housing these people and, you know, running them through the judicial system. And I know Maricopa County gets more money than Cochise County. I'm like, what's what's up with that picture? So that's something they're going to have to address. Go over there and figure it yeah. out. They what should a- figure it out. Um, I, I think it's important when we talk about it, though, there is a system in place. Could the system be improved? Well, let's talk about that. But there really is a shared responsibility in that sense on the border. And we appreciate the efforts of all of the border sheriffs. I've had very good dialogues um, with them. And while we may not always agree on the best approach, they are true public servants in the way they approach the law and protect their citizens. And, you know, I think that's something people miss with all the rhetoric and the the social media and on TV and everything. We have some amazing law enforcement professionals in Arizona. We're lucky. Compared to some we other are. states, we're you. really lucky. We are lucky. And let me tell you where I think um, I've, where I've really been impressed with um, state and local and federal agents as well is the growing dialogue with the non-governmental organizations. You know, we haven't always done as well, particularly on the border, with working with Um, organizations that support immigrant rights and that are out there providing support to people um, who may be trying to cross illegally. I see the the influx on the border has really, I think, forced all of our law enforcement partners to find the right NGOs to work with. And we've seen really good progress on that. The other thing I see in addition to working with non-governmental organizations is simply compassion. When I hear border sheriffs talk about economic migrants who have died in their territory, they say it with compassion. They, they, They want that to not happen again. And I think people need to hear about that compassion from the law enforcement officers. Oh, yeah, they're they're out there. They're the ones that get called. And, you know, you see these people and you feel so bad for them. And what do you do? You know, and some of them they can't even identify because they don't, you know, whoever was with them took all their IDs away from them. So they can't even identify the body. It's a sad yep. situation. But yeah, there are there are victims all around in this process, even if they're not technically um, victim crimes. When someone dies through alien smuggling, that is a tragedy that we need to try to prevent in the future. And, you know, I, I think about they get all this money, a lot of money to these coyotes. If they took that money and hired an attorney, an immigration attorney in America to start their process, it wouldn't cost as much and especially not their life. So I don't know. It's, well, I think we probably need comprehensive immigration reform before we get the lawyers hired there. But that, yeah, too, is something that would for help. another day, I imagine. So tell me about the benefits of being on the border for Arizonans. This, is, this messaging is among the most important that I do. I think we often in America hear, oh, 
illegal aliens coming across are dangerous for Americans. And I, I really think that the economic migrants coming over are, are coming over in almost all cases just to try to have a better life for their families. They also provide benefits to the communities. I know this from my time in Yuma, and my, my recollection here is 19, you know, late 90s recollection. It could have changed a little bit since then. But the great thing about Yuma is that it sits near the San Luis Port of Entry, and there's legal permanent residents lawfully crossing every day to work in the citrus and lettuce fields of Yuma County. Yuma County, certainly back in the late 90s, and I think still today, is better situated from a legal labor force perspective than any other agricultural area in America. It is a wonderful benefit that the Yuma community has. Now, I expect that the Yuma community also has a detailed list of problems that the border causes, but when we talk about the border, we need to reflect on the benefits as well. There's other benefits, certainly for the Tohono O'odham Nation, the border straddles their tribal lands, and it's important to keep them with access to those tribal lands. And there's innumerable small stories in Arizona of people who grew up in, say, Nogales or other areas on the border where they have cross-border connections and relatives and would go across in safer times and um, participate in binational activities at a, at a local small level. I think all of that is important to recognize. We're always going to have a border, and we need to recognize the positives of the border as we're trying to confront the negatives. So are they working on um, changing the immigration policy and procedure? Is there anybody put together a committee to say, hey, let's fix this mess? You know, if I, 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 I can only say I, I would hope that Congress can, can work on it. Um, I think there's a lot to it. What I would focus on, because what's in my lane of traffic as a prosecutor, is things like technology and cooperation. We certainly um, are seeing our partners make robust use of technology. If you get a chance ever to go into the sort of communications rooms at Border Patrol, it's a really wonderful system. We could use more of it. Um, we want our law enforcement partners to have the technology that allows um, people crossing or contraband crossing to be identified easier. And again, it comes down to finding the avenues for cooperation with our Mexican neighbors to try to work collectively to prevent the flow of contraband northbound and southbound. I want to tell listeners, the Border Patrol does a Citizens Academy, and I went through their Citizens Academy, and it was really impressive. And anybody, and I, I say this to the people who want to stand there and hold signs and, you know, put down the Border Patrol, go through that academy Walk a mile in their shoes, and let's see how many signs you hold up after that, because their job is not easy, and it's very spread yeah, out. Yeah, let me talk about that in a couple. Let me respond to that in a couple areas. These Citizens Academies are fantastic. I went through, when I was a civil rights lawyer, the FBI's Citizens Academy. And oh, it, so did I. It's, <laughs> um, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity to see how um, and why decisions are made. Here's, I think, what we can do more as prosecutors to help explain to the community the importance of law enforcement. We don't talk enough about the hero stuff. Border Patrol saves people's lives. The yes. people in the helicopters on the Boar Star do it, certainly. But Border Patrol agents just out on tracking missions or out there scouting or out in the field also come upon aliens in distress and save them. We don't talk enough 
about that um, in the media, in our press releases. I just want to say we've got some heroes working there on our border, and I'm so proud to be working with them on a daily basis. Yeah, they're they're amazing, and the Borstar people, they... <laughs> hanging out of a helicopter so they can find somebody who's, you know, fallen off a cliff someplace. They do some pretty incredible things, and nobody gives them a hats off or an attaboy. So I I think we need to change our attitude towards law enforcement totally across the board. And I think, you know, these citizens' academies are good for law enforcement to hear from the community because we have to listen, right? We have to get out into the communities that we serve and hear about the transparency concerns or consistency concerns that they have. Because we should be reacting to um, identified and quantifiable concerns that, that people have about law enforcement. And that's how we can come together and bridge some of these gaps. The HIDA, you said that there are funds funding through HIDA. How does that get processed? What do they have to do? Is it, you know red tape, a lot of red tape, or isn't it an easy process to get funds? You know, for the the funding for the county prosecutor positions, I think has been pretty steady over the years. Some counties decide not to participate, um, but again, all of those border counties have. At some point, any decisions for for new new grants like that, I, I expect would come before the executive board. I'm on the board, as are the SACs of all the federal agencies, and many of the local agencies. The Navajo County Sheriff, I think, is the chair of the HIDA at this point, and the vice chair is the SAC of IRS criminal investigations. Um, We certainly would like to have, I I think, more counties participating as long as they have enough drug trafficking work uh, in their areas because it works best when we've got a robust cross-section of Arizona um, in it. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about the rhetoric of, you know, that's going on right now, all the talk on the news and everything and the way they talk about law enforcement, the way they talk about, you know, the cartel in Mexico and things that happen on the border. What can we do to lighten the narrative? Well, we can we can stop talking about um, economic migrants as being a danger to America. There's a lot of that rhetoric out there. It needs to stop. It's false. Um, and it can lead to um, dangers for the economic migrants. I think it can also lead to danger for law enforcement, and let me tell you why. I think some of these assaults on federal officers are because um, the aliens that are apprehended are confused about what they should be doing. So I have two messages here. For the, the NGOs that are out there supporting the migrants who are crossing, there really should be some messaging that when apprehended, do not resist and comply with the instructions that are given. That is critical, and I'm not sure that message always gets out there. There's another group I'd like to talk to, and that's the militia groups that are out there on the border who are not sworn peace officers and who are trying to engage both politically and on the ground um, on the border. They are in the way, and when aliens see someone in camouflage and think that they are official Border Patrol representatives and later realized that they weren't, that can lead to those same aliens on a future apprehension thinking that the Border Patrol agent in green really is simply a private militia member. Those militias should stay the heck out of the desert and get out of the way of our sworn law enforcement heroes. 
I didn't know we still had militia people out there. I know several years back they were like, oh, the vigilantes, and they were, you know, gung-ho on the border. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're going to cause people to get hurt and die. Yeah, we've had some growing incidents um, uh, last year on this, um, and we really are continuing to keep a lookout for that because it just really dismantles the dialogue that we need to have. It's counterproductive. It certainly is. You need to behave. So we only have a couple that minutes left. <laughs> what words of wisdom do you want to want to give our listeners? So, look, the border is complex. We need people thinking about it um, collaboratively. We need them thinking about it with deep thoughts. Um, and we need them recognizing that most of the people crossing the border, when we're talking about people, are just trying to make a better life and do jobs that other people don't want to do in America. Um, The second message I have really is for any law enforcement listeners, please be safe out there as you protect our communities. Um, Please keep the faith. We need law enforcement officers to um, not retire early and to stick it out to continue to protect the communities. Uh, If we as prosecutors Um, can do our part in listening to your concerns and amplifying your concerns, please let us know so that we can continue working together in this partnership to protect the people of Arizona. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I learned a lot this morning. I hope our listeners did too. I hope you'll come on again sometime and keep the dialogue, dialogue open. I would look forward to that. I very much appreciate you taking the time. I look forward to hearing your discussion with the SAC of ATF, I think, in a couple of weeks. That'll be a great talk as well. I, I do have them coming on. Do you have a website? Can you give us an address for a website where people can go get information? Um, going to justice.gov, www.justice.gov, and then one can get to the U.S. Attorney's Office site from there. I don't know it offhand. Google USAO space AZ and you'll get to it. You can certainly follow our Twitter account at USAO AZ, or you could follow my personal U.S. attorney Twitter account at USATTY Restaino. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you explaining all this stuff to us. And hopefully the listeners learned something too. And yeah, the people in Mexico aren't bad people. Majority of them, they... They are really good people. I know I have relatives down there. So take care. Have a safe weekend. Shop local. And we'll see you next week.